Our reading this morning is from the author Anne Lamont, from her book, Hallelujah Anyway. She writes, Rilke wrote, I want to unfold. I don't want to stay folded anywhere, because where I am folded, there I am a lie. We got folded by trying as hard as we could to make everyone happy, to please everyone, and to fill every moment with productivity. Our grown-ups said this would bring approval, and approval would bring satisfaction. And they would like us more. But we also learned to sabotage ourselves so that they wouldn't feel eclipsed. High achievement made the family look good, but also seemed to be another nail in dad's coffin. We agreed to get folded at school and in jobs to get ahead, shine the family star, fill our swish cheese holes. We got folded and fooled into airless states of accomplishment, estrangement from ourselves, squandering our very short lives. Then we folded ourselves so we wouldn't annoy or embarrass our kids. Self-importance fueled by performance anxiety, people-pleasing, sloth, and bad self-esteem wrapped us into small, crisp, crisp squares like professionally laundered shirts. I was there this week. I liked it briefly because folded feels like home. Small, familiar, hugged. I like smells of soap and steam and starch. Then it becomes oppressive and disorienting. Even a lot of caffeine and cheery new curtains don't help. You see, we got creased in those places such a long time ago that it seems hopeless to begin the great unfolding now. Our integrity got broken. I am not sure we got strong at the broken places, although people love to say that this happens. You would have thought the house was completely engulfed in flames. It would have been a good excuse to cancel my plans, to delay what was coming in one short day, less than a day in but a few short hours. So intense was my anger that evening, I just wanted to give up. Was I missing something, I asked myself. Was this how it was supposed to be? Why wasn't it how I imagined? Why wasn't it how others imagined it for me? These questions, along with a great searing doubt, welled up as my husband told me to calm down 
which is what you never tell anyone when they're upset, <laughs> that it would all be okay, that it would be silly to quit before beginning. In retrospect, I realized the thing I was infuriated over wasn't the end of the world, but I still feel justified in being upset. When you do tell someone to calm down, you kind of want to say, well, I'm still right even though I know I'm wrong. <laughs> I can be a little stubborn when I'm angry, but this wasn't a big deal after all. Nearly two years ago, one day before I was set to board a plane and fly to Boston for 10 days to begin my doctoral studies, that evening, the professor finally sent the syllabus to us for the class. <laughs> Attached to the syllabus was a list of at least 30 books and several assignments to ha related to having actually read the books the day before it began. Now, I know we have a lot of academics in this congregation. <laughs> and I don't want church to be a place where you feel bad about your job. <laughs> That's what the department meetings are for. But if you've ever sent your students a syllabus the night before a class began, we need to talk. <laughs> My goodness. Amidst this anger over feeling so completely unprepared for a new chapter of life, not to mention inadequate, the excuses flowed freely. I don't want to meet new people, I kept saying, almost stamping my feet. I don't need any new friends. I'm going to hate being stuck in a room full of clergy for 10 days. I'm not ready for this. How am I going to pick a topic and write a dissertation? Who am I to write such a thing? What do I even know? I'm sure there were more excuses, many of them just as much, if not more, ridiculous. But beneath those concerns were some valid, deep fears. I, at the end of the day, despite how I am on Sunday morning and throughout the week, am intensely introverted, and small talk doesn't come easy, and so I tend to avoid those situations. And really, if you've never had the pleasure of being stuck in a room full of clergy for nearly two weeks, just don't. Just don't. We can be insufferable. And perhaps the biggest reason of all, the reason that triggered it all, the reason I doubted myself so deeply upon receiving that massive syllabus the night before class began nearly over 700 miles away, was something that is still with me and always will be. Only one person in my family has ever earned a master's degree before me, and no one has ever earned a doctorate. If you share a similar story in some way, that of being working poor, blue-collar, dirt poor, perhaps from an inner-city culture, or a holler in eastern Kentucky, what, however you connect with that story, you know what it is to cross a threshold that no one in your family ever has that no one in the community around you ever has, that no one in the culture told you was possible. There are no succinct, clear words for such an experience, but it's there, right in the chest, a hot ball of iron. Fast forward to today. I did go to that class in Boston, and it turned out fine. And I can now say I've nearly completed all of my coursework for my doctorate and spent the last week writing a proposal to be submitted very soon. But for me, today, this isn't about the academics. It's about the reality that I did indeed make new friends, that I survived being with plenty of clergy through several classes confined in small spaces. 
Not all of them insufferable, and surely some of them thought I was not their cup of tea either. And also that this was possible, it was accomplishable, that this new journey was nothing to be afraid of. And I continue that journey. It is in progress. Part of my personal story involves a giant blue-collar chip on my shoulder. The baggage of that story has a humidity to it. It can be hard to breathe and gain clarity. Yet here I am, and here you are with your own stories. The friends I've made on this journey are wonderful people. We are a ragtag team of different traditions, ages, and experiences. Among us is a United Church of Christ pastor who is a Navy veteran and mother of three Her project is going to bring a sense of joy and play back to New England congregations. There's a Dominican monk, a man that made sure we ate dessert every single night, (laughs) introduced us to authentic Russian cuisine, and whose project will bring a sense of mission back to Catholic higher education. And for the record, don't tell any bishops, he was the most liberal and profane among all of us. (laughs) Those monks, man. Wow. And then there was the vicar, an Anglican priest from Oxford, someone whose Christian love for everyone, even the most challenging of people, is evident in everything she does. Her project is going to bring a sense of eco-consciousness back to Anglicanism in the Diocese of Oxford. I'm convinced that this group of four of us are a lesson that religion need not divide, need not separate, that human beings can always choose to be in relationship with one another, if we don't let the dogma get in the way. The four of us also make a great start to one of those classic jokes. A congregationalist, a monk, a vicar, and a Unitarian walk into a bar. (laughs) That should probably be a contest. Who can have the best punchline for that? And as for my project, well, it's, it's all right. I'm seeking to bridge the gap between how we currently live our ritual lives as Unitarian Universalists and how we have evolved theologically a religion of the here and now that has stepped outside of Protestant Christianity. It's about authenticity, and I could go on and on and on and on, but that's for another sermon, perhaps a sermon series. It has been rewarding and difficult and painful and enlightening and a wonderful experience, and it is flying by. Life does do that. It just flies, and some of you are feeling that this morning in ways that I cannot understand yet. I share these brief snippets with you because many of you have asked about how this program has been going since it began, but I also share it for a deeper reason. It's nothing too groundbreaking. It's more of a reminder because I have preached this message often, but sometimes the most mundane journeys or the ones rooted in our deepest fears or ones we embark on with great doubt, or it could be as simple as choosing your seat here this Sunday morning. Whatever journey we take, We are continually being invited into greater closeness and awakening with our lives. It's a message at the core of any contemplative religious or philosophical practice to just begin. Begin when you're angry and you don't think you're good enough. Begin when you cannot fathom where it will all end up. Begin, begin, begin. Leap into your life, for you have one life that you are assured of. The words used in religious practice differ. Intimacy, pilgrimage, practice. In Unitarian Universalism, we tend toward authenticity and the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. But getting lost in the words can be a distraction. 
whatever the invitation is called for you, embrace it as a good friend and begin. For me, all the baggage I had going into a doctoral program has paled into comparison to what I've learned about myself, my deepest convictions, as well as the bonds of closeness with others on similar journeys, with similar doubts and similar fears. And these experiences, these journeys, are not always ones that we should just thank our lucky stars for. I am immensely privileged to be at a point in my life when such a thing as continued advancement in academia is possible. But I've thought about the journeys that led me to this point in my life, that continue to lead me to any point, any chapter, any moment. That of being so poor growing up, housing, health, and food were continued insecurities. Or that of being raised by a single mother working four jobs. Or coming out of the closet in high school in a conservative suburb. They're not always rosy voyages and journeys for any of us, whatever they might be. When have you embarked on a journey recently with great fear and doubt? What new closeness with your life did you experience through that? Did you even think it was possible or allowable to become closer to who you are in this moment? Just before Christmas, I was deeply saddened to hear of the death of the spiritual teacher and author Ram Das. He was best known for writing a book called Be Here Now, which... Forgive me, Ram, is essentially 100-plus pages of LSD trips on paper. (laughs) That aside, this book has changed people's lives, along with some of you in this room. He was born Richard Alpert, and despite failing his psychology entrance exams, still would earn a Ph.D. in that discipline. He went on to teach at Harvard, where he met Timothy Leary, another professor. It was then that Richard Alpert discovered LSD, meeting at Leary's home with Allen Ginsberg and some other radical or beat movement people at the time, and this was in the early 60s. And at that gathering, they went on experiences they would call great peace, great terror, and great awakening. There were many more parties like that afterward. However, upon giving LSD to an undergraduate, Alpert was fired from his post. And Leary was fired soon after for skipping his classes to go take more LSD. (laughs) Alpert and Leary would move into what was essentially an LSD commune for most of the 60s until Alpert visited India in 1968. It was there the story takes a turn. He met his guru, and upon coming back to the States, he took the name Ram Das and was transformed. Ram would admit that he lost count of how much LSD he took in his life. He lost count after 400, actually. But upon his spiritual conversion, he relied on it less and less. He would go on to say, while he enjoyed many of those experiences, the only real spiritual experiences he had were in meditation and chant without the drugs. It was there, in those moments, that he found lasting joy and peace. It's important to acknowledge as part of Ram Dass's story. He's often lifted up as a radical beat guru who was about free love and drugs. His later life tells us that at the core, he was a deeply loving and authentic teacher. That he was more than drugs and the 60s. After a stroke in the late 90s, he had to learn to speak and walk again. But in that experience, he embarked upon what he called surfing the waves of silence. Those were his two most important journeys in his life. 
meeting his guru and surfing the waves of silence. Two experiences that are increasingly rare resources in our society. In meeting his guru, he met a guide for the journey of life. And in surfing the waves of silence, he found a stillness that is deeper and more lasting than anything I could ever tell you this morning. Through those experiences, he taught two core messages. First, there is a love deeper than anything you could imagine embedded in the universe. We are completely loved, completely whole, and we are all just in his words, walking each other home, journeying with each other home. Now, I love the poetry of that, that love endures, though the skeptic in me wants to argue. Sometimes it's good to just go with the poetry. But here's what he had to say about love. He wrote, the most important aspect of love is not in the giving or receiving, it's in the being. When I need love for others or need to give love to others, I'm caught in an unstable situation. Being in love rather than giving or taking love is the only thing that provides stability. Being in love means seeing the beloved all around me. How have you lived a life where you were not just giving or receiving, but being love? The story I shared of my own doubts, I was not being love to myself or my doubts and my fears. How will you be love today? The second teaching was just as simple. You have everything you need for the journey of life. Everything you need to explore, to wander, to peek with curiosity around the corner, to bask in the view from a mountaintop, either from the summit or the trailhead. In my estimation, once we realize we have everything we need, and, and this is symbolic language, that of an inward journey, because there are those who lack material needs in our world, and we know this. But once we realize that we have what we need for that inward journey, how could we not be love in everything we do? for ourselves, for our world, for everything, for however long we are here right now. This then becomes a story and exploration of wholeness, of the undivided life, of integrity, of the task, as we heard in Anne Lamott, of unfolding ourselves. The greatest journey we are on is not to get over there, but it's to get right here, right now, in this moment. And so you've arrived. Congratulations. <laughs> the real work begins. Be here. Be love. You have what you need to begin. Blessed be. Amen.